This is episode number 163, How Compassion and Empathy Connect Us, with Matthew Solomon. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to invite all of our listeners to our upcoming call this Saturday called Courageous Conversations. This is a weekly conversation that we started a few months ago with the intention of coming together as a community and sharing on topics that matter most in our lives. If you would like to know more details about how to join any of these upcoming calls, consider leaving us a message through our website at overcomingodds.today to which we'll respond with all the details about how you can be a part of this community. Now, let's get back to the show. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for connecting with me. And I remember the conversation you and I were having. It's a slightly different topic than the one that you and I are going to dive into today. We talked about film, um, directing, script, script writing. Yeah. I know for me, that's a topic I'm very much been interested in for quite some time. And I wish that if there was any uh, specialized knowledge that I pursued, I wish that would have been an add-on for mm. me you know, during the earlier years. I think it just, it's a really different platform through which yeah. you can express a lot of your, I think, like genuine curiosity and creativity through. Have you noticed the same thing? Like what, I'm trying to think of how to even best to put this question, what does script writing and working in the film industry allow you to express as who you are? I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, I was going to say, you, you, never too late, especially true. our phones are better cameras <laughs> than, than I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is, I mean, it, it's definitely, it's a creative medium. I, for many years before I started writing, um, I was a, a professional musician and then I, I kind of fell into acting and was working as an actor and people always assumed I was a writer and they were like, you know, what have you written? And, and for a long time, I was like, I don't have any stories to tell, you know, and I didn't really want to get into that. And then at some point I started having stories to tell and I started writing them. And so, you know, it's a way to uh, express yourself. It's a way to, for me, it's commentary on the world. It's, it's you know, I get to share my point of view and my perspective. It's interesting because I, I've been in entertainment for 20, like 30, most of my life, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last few years with, with the work that I've been doing, I've transitioned away from that. And yet I always have colleagues and friends and, and people I've worked with who are like, hey, do you have a script for this? Or, hey, can we rework this thing? And actually the, the transition happened. Um, I had written a script about uh, that dealt with racism on a college campus. And so I was, had finished that. I was working on that. I was, you know, looking for financing with, with the other producers involved. And then the Me Too movement happened and Black Lives Matter had already happened. And there were all these social things that were coming up and I became more active uh, 
in that sense as a social activist, which took me out of the like narrative film. And now I have people who are asking me about documentaries and that sort of thing. So it's a, I mean, it's a creative outlet. It's a way to, it's another way to share messages and, and connect with people. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know, maybe it's, it's like an indirect way or an end around kind of thing where you get somebody watching a movie that has them think like, I, you know, I remember when the matrix came out, you know, I went and there, it was like, okay, I'm going to see this action movie. <laughs> um, Reeves is in it, which at the time he I mean he was a, a famous actor but you know it wasn't he wasn't like seen as a as a good actor and I remember like my jaw dropped <clears throat> excuse me and I, I walked out of the theater with my girlfriend at the time I was like I can't believe they made a movie about that you know and I was so blown away and I was blown away by him because his, the, the what he brought to that role was perfect mm-hmm. and so it's, it's a way to open people's minds or share other perspectives. Um, you know, there's a, uh, I forget the name of the show, but there's, there's a show that, that deals with the, the Tulsa riots in, in um, 1921, Black Wall Street, you know, which I was never taught in school, you know, and, and nobody I know was ever taught about that in school. And we kind of mm-hmm. learned that on our own. So now there's a TV show and there's a movie in the works. I think Spike Lee has a movie in the works about that. And so, you know, it's, it's just a way to share history, share ideas, open people up to different perspectives. Slight tangent from what you just said, but, but in regard to what you just shared and this, this concept of there was a portion in your life where you felt like you didn't have stories to tell. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear from your perspective because I've, I've heard this many, many times by now when I've asked people, what is your story? Or sometimes people actually begin the sentence by saying, there's nothing interesting about me to share, or I don't have any stories. Why do you think that is? Is it because people haven't done the inner dive in understanding what that story could be? Or is there something else that triggers that response when individuals say, oh, I don't have anything to share or I don't have anything to tell about myself? That's a great question. I, I think we, we tend to kind of go along in life and just, you know, it's like, this is how it is and this is the water we swim in and there's right. nothing really exceptional about it. Or, or you know, if, if we've had, you know, big hardships or big successes, it's, you know, that's just the way it's supposed to be. And you know, my experience actually in the personal and professional development world is uh, it wasn't until I started sharing my experiences and listening to other people's experiences and seeing how we could connect and bond over that. Even if we grew up in different parts of the world, even if our mm-hmm. experiences were vastly different, um, like I'm, I'm reading a book right now um, uh, when heaven became earth, when heaven became hell, I think is the name of the book, and it's about a, a Vietnamese woman who grew up during the Vietnam War in Vietnam. And as a, as a child, as a teenager, I saw all the American Vietnam movies, and so my perspective of that war was shaped by that. And to read a book by uh, a woman who grew up in a village in Vietnam and had to deal with all of that uh, and all the the tragedy. And although I've never ever experienced tragedy like that, I can connect with her emotionally because there are things I've dealt with where, you know, you, you just, you feel things. And so 
Uh, I think it's when we start sharing, when we start writing, when we start listening to other people's stories that we really connect and bond with each other. And that's when, uh, like when I wrote, I wrote my, my first script, which was, um, it was called Kung Fu Man. And it was uh, a, a Zen, a Zen master whose wife was pregnant and he could deal with guys with swords coming at him. But, you know, his pregnant wife, you know, brought all these other challenges that he had to find his way. And in my life at the time, I was a martial artist and my wife was at the time, I'm um, divorced now, but she was pregnant. And, so, <laughs> and I was watching the TV series that I grew up with and I was like, yeah, that guy's great. But what if he was dealing with what I'm dealing with? And so when I, when I wrote that and shared that and made that as a short film and people would connect with it and be like, oh my God, I can totally relate. Um, and I would, and you know, it was a comedy. Um, like I saw the, I, I started to get the magic in all of our, us, all of us having stories and, and the power in us sharing our experiences. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a really interesting point that you share. And that's a question that I've been wondering or pondering upon for quite some time, because the question within the question for me has been, if we choose to share different elements of our story, could that possibly lead to deeper empathy and compassion? Because as I look at compassion, and I know that you do a lot of work in that space mm-hmm. yourself, what, what is compassion to begin with? Well, it's, you know, compassion, empathy, it's really, um, on the one hand, it's, it's really feeling for another person. It's being invested in, uh, like me being invested in what your experience is and has been mm-hmm. you know when, when we spoke before and you shared your story um while you know that's not been my story like i i could feel you know elements of what you dealt with and how things were for you and and while it may not be on the mark it's it's my willingness to to really put myself over there with you and your experience that has us connect mm-hmm. um and i think you, you know there's a there's a big disconnect because, uh, you know, uh, part, part of it is we're not really taught how to feel things. We're not taught much about our feelings, especially in school. You know, we get out of school, maybe we have therapists, you know, at some point, you know, in our childhood or adulthood or, or you know, it's not, it wasn't until uh, I really, as an adult, started taking courses and, you know, personal development and that sort of thing, where I was able to not only access my feelings and emotions, but, but to name them and to be okay with them. Cause that's the other part, especially as men, you know, for me as a man in, a, in America, you know, it's like you pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You're not supposed to cry. You're not supposed yeah. to show any emotion. You're not supposed to feel anything. You're just supposed to get the job done, you know? And then we get in relationships and we're, we're you know, for those of us who are, in heterosexual relationships, we have our wives who's like, you don't, you know, you don't connect with me. You don't feel what I'm, <laughs> what I'm feeling. I just want you to understand. And it's like, ah, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. You know? And so, you know, compassion is, is really, I mean, for me, the simplest way thing is, is caring about somebody else, you know, and being willing to, to sit in, in the uncomfortable feelings and the emotions that, that come along with that. And I really think it is as simple as that, at least to a degree. I don't know if it's the ultimate answer, 
to gaining greater understanding and solving some of the problems that we're even experiencing right now with COVID and inequality and justice and all the different things. But it's really just choosing to create a space where we can mutually understand each other. Because just like you said before, your story is not the same as my story and neither will any of the listeners. But the fact that there's a possibility that we can create a space through which we can identify uh, an opportunity for us to see each other and say that, okay, you've been through this, I've been through that. And my story is not meant to by any means diminish your trauma or your mm-hmm. hardship yeah. because they're all unique to what they are, but rather just meeting. It's almost like we're meeting each other wherever we're at and then choosing to share that space to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that, that's really great. And there's a tendency, um, you know, that I've witnessed where, uh, you know, if, if you were to share your story um, on some, you know, intrinsic level, I believe that I should be able to, to have commentary on your story or to tell you like how you could have been or how you could be or how you could think of it or, you know, to put the positive spin or try and fix it or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that really just gets in the way you know, because who am I to tell you what, how you should feel about your journey and the things you've experienced. But if I'm willing to, to empathize, you know, if I'm willing to sit and connect and get a sense of what you experience, then, um, then there's something to actually do about that. If, if there is anything like, may, you know, maybe you're just sharing and it's like, yeah, that, that was a really, you know, major powerful experience and that's all that there needs to be said or maybe there's something to do you know to transform certain things you know i don't know but we can't really get to how do we heal and transform if i'm sitting in judgment of you and your reactions and you know based on the things that you've experienced you know and i and go ahead do you think that's a conditioned way of thinking though do you think it's a conditioned way of thinking that we sometimes find ourselves in, in wanting to fix other people, or is that just, or is that naturally how we're born? No, I think, I definitely think it's conditioned. I think, I think, um, you know, when I, I remember, you know, when I've watched kids, I have kids, you know, like my, my son, one of them in particular would, would really feel what other kids were feeling. And he, you know, um, but it's, you know, it's, we're taught through, you know, and I'm speaking again as a, a white man in a, in America. Like our 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 superheroes, our TV shows, our movies, uh, especially as men, is all about saving the day. You know, it's all about in in relationships. Also, you know, it's like, oh, I screwed up, but I'm going to make it better. You know, and and so I think that's the conditioning. We're not taught at all. We're not taught how to communicate. We're not taught how to listen to each other. You know, at 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 some point. Uh, my kids' generation have been taught to use their voice, um, you know, so they can speak and share and, and talk about their feelings. But even them, you know, they're not taught really how to, how to listen to another person's experience and get a sense of what they're feeling and experiencing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still very much, well, I would do it this way, or I think mm-hmm. this. So, so if we're having a conversation and you're saying something like, my conditioning is to think about how I'm going to respond and, you know, I'm judging and evaluating and considering, and I'm not really listening to you in a space where, where I'm listening for what your experience is. And when we connect, like it's, it's so great. There, there was um, 
uh, Joe Biden released a campaign video last week with him mm-hmm. and Obama talking. And Obama says this thing. He says, it all starts with being able to relate to another person and, and being able to sit and listen and, and essentially share their experience. And I'm watching this, this thing. I'm like, that's exactly what I, what I teach people. How to do. <laughs> right, that's, that's what it is. It's like, we're, it's like, why sit and listen to somebody if, if you have an agenda or if you're going to, you know, so yeah, it's definitely conditioning. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a, it's such a spot on statement as far as being able to sit there and listen to other people. And here's one thing what, that I've learned through my experience is I don't believe a, that happens overnight and B, I don't know if we're born with that. And just like you said, you know, communication gets developed over time mm-hmm. and understanding how we communicate and how to communicate with other people. I mean, I don't know however, however many years it took me, but it took me quite some time to understand the difference between just listening for the sake of responding and then listening in order to understand. Yeah. Very big difference between the two. And I think that having the agenda part in the back of the mind, I can relate and see numerous times where I had that in conversations. I would step into it. And as soon as the person, especially once they say a particular word, that mm-hmm. triggers that script, boom. Yeah. Next thing they're going to get is a full download of that <laughs> memoir. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting. It's interesting how that works and how communication also evolves. I mean, I look at the time right now, 2020, and the things that we have in our access are not the things that we had 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. And so technology also plays a big role in shifting the way that we communicate. Yeah, for sure. And the, what, have, and the, what have you seen through your experience? Because you, you've been on the planet just a little bit longer than I have. <laughs> the communication, how has that shifted from when you were uh, a kid is, to where it is now? I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot more of it just because of social media. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like, you know, the inundation of, you know, information and theories and judgments and like it's it's how has it changed i mean it, the magnitude of it has changed because you know I, like when i grew up it was and mostly my parents generation but it spilled over you know it's like you don't talk about politics or religion you know mm. at, you know in, at family functions um and now it's just it's everywhere and i think it's important that it's everywhere because there are issues that that have not been addressed or haven't been sufficiently addressed that need to be addressed. The, the, then the other problem is it's so easy to, you know, find confirmation bias of, you know, Mm. what you want to believe. It's not even, you know, I don't, you know, you can find anybody who a source for whatever you believe, but you find a source for what you want to believe, you know, what, what's easier for you to digest. And then that becomes a thing. And then um, instead of, again, you know, it becomes an intellectual thing, which is, you know, if we're taught anything as far as communication, we're taught to debate, right? We're taught to intellectualize. We're taught to, um, on social media, especially, it's like we're taught to, you know, put people down and win your point and, you know, and sit back and drop your mic and like all of that <laughs> stuff. When, when really what, what's missing is what we were talking about was the compassion and the empathy, which we still haven't been taught largely. I mean, this is what, you know, I teach, um, 
you know, when I, I, I worked with couples as a relationship coach uh-huh. and that, that opened up into working with organizations. And it's really a lot of the same principles of getting two people to talk and hear each other that works in uh, colleges, works in corporations, works in organizations and businesses where when you get, when I get people to really just be willing to be present and listen. And I train, you know, leaders in organizations in doing this also because the old model of leadership, you know, that we've been taught doesn't really work anymore where it's the, you know, the bottom line. And, you know, so, so teaching people how to relate and connect and really hear each other from a place of experience, you know, understanding their experience is what really shifts things. And, and it, with everybody I've worked with, every organization I've worked with, that's the, the thing that opens up where people, where people actually relax and start to work together in ways that benefit everybody. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, that's where I see we, we for sure need to go. And that's what I see is missing. Um, and it, it just, there's just so much, uh, you know, bombardment of information, mm-hmm. communication and debate. There's so much debate uh, that it's, it can be hard to sift through. Where does one begin the journey to compassion? I, I know probably case by case, but cases it's different mm-hmm. from one individual to another but if you were to break down maybe a traditional journey of compassion where can an individual that's listening to the show that may not feel compassion where can they begin what questions can they start asking themselves what can they do as far as kind of a step one of this journey yeah well there's well that's great there's, so there's you know there's um understanding yourself first but then in conjunction being willing to understand another person. So if I was, you know, if I was working with you or somebody on this, you know, there would be two practices. The first practice would be to spend time every day checking in with yourself, sitting, breathing quietly, whether you call it meditation or, or whatever, and, and asking yourself, how do I feel right now? What are the sensations in my body? You know, what, what are the emotions that are coming up? Do I feel happy? Do I feel sad? Do I feel tightness? Do I feel openness? Um, if I'm watching something on TV, what, how do I feel in response to that? What am I experiencing? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the other part would be to, you know, when you're having conversations with people, um, you know, there's listening to the words you're saying, but, there's, but start listening for how do you, how do I, how am I um, sensing that you're feeling? What am I picking up on about your experience? You know, mm-hmm. if you're telling me a story about going to Starbucks and they screwed up your, your drink, like what must have that been like for you, you know, from what you're sharing? You know, were you frustrated? Did you give up and not care? Were you excited and then, and then angry that they, they screwed up? You know, and so really starting to listen from a place of, you know, what was your experience? Um, that, that's where I start. And then, and then there's, you know, other exercises and things within that. But at, at the very, at the very root of that, when people start doing that, like a whole world opens up um, where we're able to connect where we weren't before. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different experience from choosing to respond. I think yeah. listening to that story, that story of Starbucks, and then just relating with a story of your own, which I think happens oftentimes, in, I mean, in my opinion, as self-aware as I would like to consider myself to be, it still happens to me. I don't think it's the, I don't, I don't think 
I developed the tools and it'll never happen again because let's face it, never is a very long time. And um, (laughs) it's no matter, no matter how self-aware I become, I think those elements will always come back and there will always be those situations where I may not fully be there listening to understand, but sometimes listening to respond. Yeah. And I think you may need both. What are your thoughts on that? Because, Um, you know, you probably need both to a degree, right? Well, I think, I I think we're able to respond more effectively when we're listening to another person's experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you, if, and you know, we're talking hypotheticals, but if you were to share something with me and I were to um, respond from a place of acknowledging your experience first, Mm -hmm. that, that will bring your guard down a bit, you know, that will have there be less stuff in, in our space, you know, prohibiting us from really connecting so that I actually know how to respond to you based on what you're telling me and, you know, what you may need to hear if I'm mm. listening for your experience, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that's a, that's a thing that, um, you know, I notice a lot of times dealing with customer service, you know, like with a cable company or whatever. <laughs> when I call and I have a problem, and they give me the, oh, I do apologize for that and, you know, reboot your modem versus when I, you know, get the customer service people who are like, wow, that, that's really frustrating. I'm really sorry. And I, you know, I can imagine what that must be like, and I'm going to do my best to, you know, to help you fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm probably going to have to reboot my modem, but I feel so much better about the second one than I do about the first that's that wrote response that like, they don't even care. I think it, you know, at our, at the root, we all just want to feel heard, understood and valued. Mm. When another person shows, you know, shows us that, that they value us and they hear us and they, they're trying to understand. And, you know, then, then there's a, there's a, a relationship that forms, whether it's, you know, fixing a modem or a romantic relationship or a, or a corporate you know, business relationship, like if I get that you are invested in me and caring about me and valuing me, uh, there's a lot more room for us to, um, to work together, you know, for Mm -hmm. me to hear the things that you're, you know, the things that you might see for me to do that would, you know, fix or be the solution or whatever, you know. I can definitely relate to that. I can pinpoint numerous relationships where I would be listening to the other individual, but yet I was trying to fix them or fix the problem. And I remember a couple of times in particular, my partner would, she would say, um, Hey, I don't want you to fix my problem. I just want you to listen. And it, that, that took a while to understand because it required me to completely reprogram parts of my brain, which were just there to listen. And as soon as you hear a problem, you, how do you fix it? What's the solution? And I I think a lot of that also boils down to how you might be brought up and the influences that you've had. For example, when I, when I came to the States, my dad is an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so his mode of operation is to solve problems. And so what I saw on a daily basis was him coming up with other forms of solutions two problems that he didn't even create sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at that as, oh, that's got to be the norm. That's got to be the way that I operate in life. Yeah. And maybe that's the way, maybe that's the way some of the world is shaped. How, as you look back at your life, how much of the, 
world do you feel like you've created? I know you might be on a slightly different journey right now, Mm -hmm. but leading up to it was due to the influence of your parents. Oh, I mean, uh, I mean, most of it, you know, Mm -hmm. my parents were school teachers, Um, you know, so it was, and, and elementary school teachers. So, you know, it was very, um, you know, by the books and by the numbers, there, there were elements of creativity, you know, but it, but it was also like the, you know, this is, this is, sorry, this is the path. This is what we're supposed to do. Um, and, you know, for me, like I went through school and I did, I did pretty well in school and, but I was very creative and I wanted a career at the time as a musician. And so I went to college to music school because we were supposed to go to college. And so it's like, all right, if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to music school. And then I got two years in and I didn't really want to be there. And the band that I was in was recording and we were talking about touring and everything. So I was like, I I don't need this and I don't want this, but it was a big, um, me leaving school at that time, you know, was a big issue within my family. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and it's been, it's been an interesting journey having not completed that and then doing work on college campuses and teaching professors and, and administrators and, and students how to, how to communicate and create partnership uh, as somebody who hadn't finished school. And so actually through all of this, through COVID and um, uh, my mom and my uncle passed away in March. And so, you know, my, my life has shifted and I'm still doing the work that I'm doing, but, but it's also, you know, there aren't live workshops, you know, in person anymore. So I decided I'm going to go back to school and and finish my degree. And so I'm doing that now as an adult with a a very specific focus on, um, you know, learning things that are of interest to me, which back, you know, how many years ago, I don't want to do the math, was music and sociology. That's when I got into sociology. But now it's, um, you know, it's intergenerational trauma, it's intercultural relationships, it's conflict resolution, social justice, um, you know, things like that, that I'm getting to study, uh, which, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I'm doing a lot of that. And it's, you know, I'm getting the academic side, in addition to the experience that I've, mm-hmm. that I've lived and that I've um, observed, you know, my friends, particularly black friends, people of color, indigenous people, you know, the things that they've shared with me and that I've observed as their experience, I'm getting to immerse myself into the academic um, part of that. Mm -hmm. Not to put words in your mouth, but do you feel like one of the reasons why you might have gone to school is because did, did you have any feelings that you carried with you for however long in being perceived in X, Y, and Z way for not finishing your school by some of the members of your family? Oh, right now? Um, you mean going back to school? What, yeah. What ultimately wanted, made you decide to go back now? You know, it, it's, it's, it, it's so funny. Um, so I don't know. So there's a picture behind me. Uh, uh-huh. My grandmother, uh, my dad's mom, when she, so she raised three kids. Uh, she came, she lived through the great depression. She raised three kids as a single mom. Her husband passed away when, when my father was three years old. So she raised three kids through the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, she's a Jewish woman uh, from, from Poland, wasn't allowed, that generation didn't get bat mitzvah or anything. So when she was 73, she was bat mitzvah, which is a you know, Jewish tradition uh, 
rite of passage ceremony. Um, when she was 89, she, and she was always, you know, all about education and getting that piece of paper. And when I left school every single day, every single time that I would see her, she would always ask me, are you going to go back? When are you going to go back? And I was like, no, grandma, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. When she was 89, she was sitting around and she had gone to college, but left because she had to take care of her kids. And so she was sitting around and she was like, I wonder, you know, how many units I needed, how many credits to graduate college. And so she called up Santa Monica City College where she had went and they pulled her transcripts and she had, I don't know if it was eight credits or 16 or whatever, but she was like, okay, I want to enroll and I want to go back to school at 89, 90. And, and, and basically they were like, you know, we're going to give you a, a degree. You've earned it. And at 90 years old, she walked the stage and got her college degree. <laughs> it's incredible. So, yeah, so she passed away 15 years ago. Uh, my mom passed away in March. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I was sitting at my dad's house a few months ago and just thinking about life and thinking about them and thinking about, you know, everything. And I was like, I wonder how close I was because I was thinking about my grandma. And so I got my transcripts pulled and uh, I somebody told me that Antioch University has a program where they uh, apply credits from your previous education. And so I talked with an admissions person there and they looked at uh, the, the credits that I had from USC and Valley City College and everything. And, and they looked, they saw the work experience and the things that I've done as a, as a writer and activist and educator and all of that. And so I was able to transfer a big chunk of credits to where, you know, they were like, you know what, you could probably complete your degree in a year based on everything that you've done and provided. Mm -hmm. so I was like, all right, cool. And so that, that's, that's literally what it was. You know, there, there had been times where, you know, I've, because now I'm more in an academic uh, capacity and, you, you know, where, where there was partially a missing of, well, I don't have a degree, but I have all of this life experience, you know, doing what I'm teaching. Um, but yeah, part of it was a question for me. And then part of it was, uh, I may as well. And I get to, to study things that I'm interested in mm -hmm. um, and, you, you know, hone my writing skills. Cause I've, you know, I've written books and columns and all of that, but, you know, I have things that I have in the works. And so this is a way to really uh, make those better, you know, before I actually dive in. How do you view college right now entering at this stage of your life? compared to when you entered it at first. Do you think it could be different the way that we have it set up as far as going into college directly after high school or, or is there another approach that you would take to it? Wow. You know, as, as, as a 47 year old man looking back um, and somebody like, you know, I, I do a lot of work with, with teens also. And, and when I was doing that particular program on the college campus. I worked with students directly and, you know, students would see me, uh, you know, individually for, for coaching and to ask questions right. and everything. And it, you know, it's, I think that it's available is a great thing. I, I you know, in my twenties, my life trajectory was totally different. I knew what I wanted to do. I know a lot of um, students don't really know what to do or they, they go into a certain field because 
you know, my parents said this is a good way to make money, right. or it's a, you know, and so, and then they get into college and it's like, okay, well, I could finish this degree in nursing, but what I really want to do is, you know, write books or make movies. And so, you know, is it's, that's an interesting question. I think it's, um, you know, if we, cause that's a really, I'm a little, I'm a little, I, I, I probably need to look at that a little bit. Cause, cause I think the fact that it's there and it's an experience to have, you know, younger in life is a really great thing. And we learn a lot about socializing with others and fitting in with groups and right. sort of thing. And at that age, we don't really have much life experience at all. So, you know, I think with professors and administrators, like they become the guides, you know, to be like, all right, you, you know, from my perspective, 20 years down the line from you, um, I can see, you know, it's like coaching. It's like, I can see the, the pitfalls and the things and the areas that, that you could develop yourself in. Mm -hmm. and it's just a willing, it's a willingness on the student's part. Am I going to be coachable and receptive to that? Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. I think, I think it's good to have that just as continuing education. And, and there's, you know, uh, most of the professors that I worked with had been in academia all their lives, you know, so they'd been, they never really left school in any capacity. Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, a lot of them were able to travel and, and see the world or study in different places. And so I think, I think it's a great, valuable option to have. I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think it's for everybody at that time um, in their life. And, you know, the fact that it's there and, uh, you know, is, is a good thing. I think to a degree, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I, I like the point that you made about having to be there and accessible to people. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I've learned is, and obviously this is not true for everyone, but it seems like a majority one of the things that gets introduced in college in particular because there's no longer quote unquote parental control mm -hmm. is the use of drugs. Yep. And that could be, that could lead or come with a serious set of consequences if those things are abused. I mean, dropping out of school, sure. but getting in trouble with the law, whatever it may be. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just the interesting to hear your perspective because I look at my own journey and I think of one of the biggest things that I took away from my college experience is the ability to network and connect with mm -hmm. people. Yeah. But the funny thing has been about that is I don't remember a single time recalling a course called networking 101. Mm -hmm. It's just not a thing. Yeah. And, and in fact, I would say it's true. Most schools, yeah. you're not really taught how to network when in reality, if you look at life beyond college, at least from my point of view, 90% of it is about your ability to network, connect with other people. I mean, the whole concept of the, of the diploma, I don't know how many times it's been brought up after I graduated, maybe three times, five times. And that's, we're talking about thousands of interactions. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's interesting go, kind of going back full circle with how you and I started this conversation and it's really choosing to learn how to communicate with other people and other beings and knowing that communication, I believe communication is one of the key components to whatever you envision in doing in life. 
or that yeah. sense of purpose or meaning. It opens doors. It gives you and creates opportunities that you may not have had or known that existed to you. But all of it goes through your ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. What do you want? How are you willing to go get it? Mm-hmm. Why do you want it? Yeah. And I think if, if you can't articulate those things, it becomes harder for other people to help you along your journey. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting point, great point that you raised about, you know, when you get into college and there's not that parental um, control or, you know, right. the, the fear of, of that is, you know, if you take that back into elementary school um, and even, you know, junior high and high school, like, I, you know, I mean, drugs get introduced around middle True. school, junior high. Um, but you know, like you said, we're not taught how to network. We're not taught how to communicate. Like I was saying, we're not taught anything about sex and relationships other than, you know, don't do it. Or if you do do it, protect yourself because you're going to get a disease and die. You know, like that I grew up in during the AIDS epidemic. And so it was, it was very much fear-based. Like if you have sex, you're going to catch a disease, you know? So so having no relationship skills, having no financial literacy skills, really, because my, That's I mean, still a thing. Mm-hmm. you know, economics in, in when I was growing up was a, a joke, you know, literally um, there was a, one of the savings and loan scandal guys in the eighties went to my high school and had my same economics. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, we're not taught about money. We're not taught about, really, we're not taught about sex and relationships and all, the, the emotions that come up and boundaries and consent and, and all of that stuff. And then we're thrown into this population of, you know, 19-year-olds, <laughs> right? You know, thousands of other 19-year-olds who don't know anything about anything with alcohol and drugs and no oversight. And by the way, here's a credit card. You know, here's your first credit card. Um, and, you know, and I remember when, when I was in college, most of my friends had maxed out their credit cards before graduation. And I was always yeah. very good about that. And it wasn't until, you know, probably 10 or 15 years later that I started getting into trouble with debt and all of that. But, but all of that, like there's no, the, the life skills, we're not taught life skills. And then we're thrown into this thing where we got to like sink or swim and figure it out. And yeah. You know, and, and there aren't really college courses that support that. Correct. In large part either. And um, if there are, I think some of those courses are very introductory. And it, what I've learned is that sometimes this is not true for all courses, but sometimes the courses are just so intro that it's like, it doesn't even relate to what you might experience as a, as a real life situation. Yeah. And I got curious about that a couple of times, like even in the financial literacy courses, why is there no, or at least in my time, there appear to be no legitimate cases of people getting in credit card debt, bring in, not even bring in someone, but ask the people in the audience, raise your hand if you're in credit card debt right now, raise your hand if you have payments, why is it? And, and help me relate to a fellow classmate who's relatively close in age of how they got there. I think some of the cases and case studies that I've learned was so much textbook paced that it was you know, 20 years back when yeah. 20 years back college was not what it, what it, what it is now. Yeah. And that, that thing also evolves because the life cycle of its own. So I think there is a fine balance between having an academic approach as well as experience-based approach. Mm-hmm. Like what actually happens now 
instead of what even happened five years ago. Because even five years ago, that was a completely different world. Yeah. Than what we're experiencing right now. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Do you Four years ago. Oh, pretty, pretty yeah. 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 Do you have anything up coming up that um, people can get involved with? What's the best way that people can connect with you? Website, oh, yeah, social media, anything like that? Sure, yeah. MatthewSolomonConsulting.com is my website. And I do, you know, I do programs, like I said, for organizations. And, and um, the best thing is for us to have a conversation about, you know, how involved somebody would want that to be, how long the program. You know, generally, it's three to six months. Uh, I did, you know, I've done year-long immersion programs for organizations. I also train leaders. I, I have an integrated leadership coaching uh, program that's three months where we, we look at, uh, you know, empathy, empathetic uh, leadership. And, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, we become passive all of a sudden. It just, it's a way to connect with our, uh, our employees, the people in our organization to really, uh, there, was a, there was a movie years, years ago called uh, Chimpanzee. And it was a documentary about a group of chimpanzees in the forest. And, uh, and there was this rival group. And this was a small group that, you know, was vulnerable to attack and everything. And they knew the attack was coming. And the leader of that group, before the attack was coming, went to all of the other chimpanzees and sat with them and groomed them and spent time with them and built that bond. So when the bigger, larger group came in, they fought so hard together as a unit that they pushed them back and they, you know, they survived. Mm-hmm. So, you know, seeing that type of leadership, like that's the, the leaders who have inspired me are the ones who I felt were invested in me, you know, who, who cared. And so that's, that's what I help leaders to discover is that part of them that has them connect with, with the people in their organization. So to, long story short, like I, you know, I, I, I speak, I do trainings, I do individual coaching uh, but all of that is at matthewsolomonconsulting.com thank you all for listening to today's episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did if you haven't done so already consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content also if you like what you heard consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring stories. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next week.